the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Weekday evenings on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. It's 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. Host Daryl Wood brings you the day's news and trending topics as only he can with a unique blend of conservative opinion, constitutionalism, and thought-provoking analysis. Join the conversation. 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. A daily look at the news in a way you won't hear anywhere else. Tune in to 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. Or stream at PatriotDetroit.com. You are in, in what part of the country? <laughs> Southwest Colorado. Wonderful. How are you picking us up? Oh, I stream you guys on my uh, iPhone every day. Fantastic. Um, I, I am a resident of Sterling Heights, but uh, I frequently come to Southwest Colorado. I am just thrilled to be hearing from you out there in Colorado. Continue to listen, tune in again, and call at your earliest convenience. Godspeed. Run to Win with Daryl Wood, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. on Faith Talk Detroit. That resides within us. We are not contending for the faith, as it says in Jude. And we think to ourselves, well, I know the Bible to be transcendent, absolute truth, but I can't defend it because I really haven't grown in the area of the discipleship of my mind. Did you just hit the brakes and rush our traffic? Stop. Let's consider that for a minute. We know when we come to faith in Christ that our heart is transformed, but what about the concept that our mind has been renewed? What have we done, the ambassadors for Christ, those who are living epistles, what have we done to be able to give a robust defense of the gospel in the marketplace? That is going to be our focus this hour. And what a treat. I Words fail me to convey how thrilled I am to be able to spend the hour with Dr. Alistair McGrath. He is internationally known for his work in apologetics. He is one of the most brilliant apologists alive today, in my humble opinion. He happens to be professor of science and religion at Oxford University, director of the Ian Ramsey Center for Science and Religion. He also serves as the Gresham Professor of Divinity, a public professorship in the city of London, established in 1597. America wasn't even an idea at that point. And the purpose of this is to promote something that we are passionate about here on this program, the public engagement of theology with the leading issues of the day. By the way, he is a superb author. He wrote the international bestseller that would be required reading on my syllabus, if you were in my class, called The Dawkins Delusion Question Mark. He himself is a former atheist, and yet he has done such a marvelous job of winsome engaging the atheists of our day. He wrote a book called Mere Theology, and now he's followed up with it on another book called Mere Discipleship, Growing in Wisdom and Hope, and it speaks right to this idea of the discipleship of the mind. He joins us from the UK. Professor McGrath, what a delight to spend the hour with you. Thank you. Well, I'm honored to be with you and really look forward to our conversation. Thank you so very much. You write in your book that you discovered Christianity in 1971. Tell me a bit, if you would, please, about that journey. 
Well, that journey began, I think you were hinting at this, with the sense I was an atheist. I was an atheist because I believed Christianity didn't make sense. I didn't really have Christian friends who could say, look, you need to rethink this. And in many ways, my own journey to faith was gradually realizing two things. First of all, that actually atheism wasn't as intellectually exciting or, or as intellectually good as I'd been thinking, but much more importantly, that Christianity seemed to be able to answer some questions that atheism really couldn't deal with. And so uh, in my first year at Oxford University, when I was an undergraduate, I switched from atheism to Christianity. And I annoy my atheist friends. I say, look, I, I left behind my initial faith, which was atheism and embraced Christianity. They all say, hey, hey, atheism isn't a faith, but you know it is because my atheist friends don't believe in God, but they can't prove that that's right. So it's always good to be able to challenge them on that. But the thing I want to emphasize tonight is that although I embraced Christianity with delight, I grew in my faith. And really, that's the, that's the message of this book, that we can grow mm-hmm. in our faith. We can, we can engage people. We can understand it better. And that means we're better ambassadors for Christ to the world. You start out the book by giving a definition of discipleship. I think that would be important for us to do at the start of our conversation. How, we, how do we define that term? As you point out, that word isn't used in Scripture, and yet it's very much of a theological concept. Very much so. Uh, Discipleship is really this whole idea of, if you like, beginning to be conformed to what God wants us to be. And sure, God is going to help us, but we've got to do something as well. And one of the biblical texts that's so important to me is Christ's words, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And you know, he's saying discipleship has many elements. It's all about the, the hands, we do certain things, the heart, we love God. But also, it's about loving God with all our mind. And it's really trying to help that along that I'm really concerned about. Trying to, if you like, recalibrate our minds. Begin to get excited, not just about the love of God, but the new way of looking at the world that Christianity makes possible. And helping other people to see just how wonderful and engaging this is. Well, I can't think of a better reason to spend the next hour listening to this broadcast. I can't wait to hear how the rest of our conversation goes. Dr. Alistair McGrath is with us. He is an internationally renowned apologist, a superb author. His newest book is called Mere Discipleship, a little hat tip there to C.S. Lewis's and his classic Mere Christianity. And we've got much to talk about as we dive into this concept of the discipleship of the mind. Much more coming your way right after this. By their creator, these words are evidence this nation's government was established by God. This is Jim Garlow. America's National Birth Certificate, the Declaration of Independence, affirms all authority comes from God when he states that all people are endowed by their creator with rights. And these unalienable rights cannot be taken away by any person. When the founders wrote and signed the founding document of the United States, They did not separate God from the state. The placement of Judeo-Christian values and biblical morality into the founding documents and laws was clearly intentional. They knew the goal for government is to protect the God-given rights of citizens. One of the founders, Benjamin Rust, said, Without religion there can be no virtue, and without virtue there can be no liberty, and liberty is the object and life of all Republican governments. Now we must return to our Judeo-Christian values. There's more at wellversedworld.org. It's time for The Man in the Mirror. With today's challenge for men, here's Patrick Morley. 
Men, do you wrestle with the feeling that to be more spiritual or more acceptable to God, that you need to work harder for Him? If so, you're not alone. The if you really love God, you need to prove it mentality plays well with most of us. Most of us were raised to find our identity and worth in how well we perform, how much we produce, and how successful we become. It's all very exhausting, isn't it? But it's not well done, good and successful servant. It's well done, good and faithful servant. God calls us to be faithful, not successful. In fact, in the wisdom of God, success is being faithful. Are you taking seriously Jesus' command to be his disciple and make disciples? Get free resources online to help you do both at mimradio.org. As good Bereans, the time has come for us to compare and contrast the historic Christian gospel with the progressive gospel, a movement invading the church. That's why I've chosen another gospel as this month's truth tool. Learn how historic Christianity stands up to doubts and concerns about our faith. Ask for your copy of another gospel when you give a gift of any amount in the market. Call 877-JANET-58, that's 877-JANET-58, or go to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Why are you not a Christian? Because I see no evidence whatever for any of the Christian dogmas. I've examined all the stock arguments in favor of the existence of God, and none of them seem to me to be logically valid. Do you think there's a practical reason for having um, a religious belief for, for many people? Well, there can't be a practical reason for believing what isn't true. Uh, that's quite, uh, at least I rule it out as impossible. Either the thing is true or it isn't. If it is true, you should believe it, and if it isn't, you shouldn't. And uh, if you can't find out whether it's true or whether it isn't, you should suspend judgment. But you can't, uh, it seems to me, a fundamental uh, dishonesty and a fundamental treachery to intellectual integrity to hold a belief because you think it's useful and not because you think it's true. Hmm. Bertrand Russell, who wrote the famous piece, Why I Am Not a Christian. So let's say, fast forward, you had the opportunity to sit down and have a cup of tea with him, and he made those same statements to you. You, a follower of Christ, you who have eternity placed in your heart, you who know his principles and precepts, how would you respond? And by the way, would that argument be difficult to unpack? Hold on to that question for a minute. Dr. Alistair McGrath is with us, joins us all the way from England. He is a world-renowned apologist, a best-selling international author and professor at Oxford University. His new book is called Mere Discipleship, where he challenges us to really take seriously this idea of developing the discipleship of the mind. I'm going to go back to the big 35,000-foot questions in a minute, if I can, Dr. McGrath. But let me go to Bertrand Russell, because if people can begin to develop this, you hear Bertrand Russell make that statement. And in truth, it seems to me it's not all that difficult to unpack. His presupposition is you cannot believe in something you cannot prove or in something that is not true. You could turn that around and then say, dear Mr. Russell, if you are an atheist, how do you prove that God is not real? And how can you believe in something that is not true? Can we not turn that idea on its head? We 
certainly could. And if Bertrand Russell was to join our conversation, I'd want to ask him exactly that question. I'd say, look, I, I want to agree with you. I cannot prove there is a God. Now, you prove to me that there is no God. And of course, Russell was a good philosopher. And he would say, well, actually, I can't do that. And if I were to press him, and I know what his answer would be, because he tells us in one of his books, you know, why are you then an atheist? He would say, well, actually, uh, it's because I've chosen to live my life that way. He was very, very clear that you cannot prove there is a God, you cannot prove there is no God, and therefore, whether you end up believing in God or believing there is no God, you're taking your position as a matter of faith. And therefore, I'd say to Bertrand Russell, well, look, really, our argument is about which is the better faith. Is it Christianity or is it atheism? And that is mm. actually his, his real difficulty, that he cannot prove his beliefs. And actually the same problem emerges for Richard Dawkins, who puts Russell's ideas much more aggressively. He can't prove his beliefs, and that really is a big problem for him. But for the believer, and this is one of the heartbeats of the book, Mere Discipleship, for many Christians, we've allowed ourselves to take this passive position of not contending because of the kind of statements that we just heard Mr. Russell make, which is, you cannot prove the existence of God, therefore I cannot believe in him. So internally, it seems to me, there's this this hurricane going on in the heart and mind of the believer who says, uh-oh, how do I prove the existence of God? And if we think we come up short with empirical evidence, we retreat from the conversation. How do we get beyond the idea that there is a preponderance of evidence, there is a preponderance of reasons to believe in the validity of Christianity, but is it our fear of failure or our desire to be accepted that transcends our ability or our desire or the mandate more to the point of rolling up our sleeves and studying to show ourselves approved by doing our homework so we can contend? Well, that's a really good question. There are two things I want to say. One is that actually most Christians do feel a little bit hesitant about actually engaging in argument because they haven't really thought through their faith. And they're worried that if they did think about their faith, they'd find holes and problems and all sorts of stuff yes. like that. And one of the things I'm mm-hmm. saying in this book is, look, think about your faith. You're meant to, and you realize how good it is and the various things you can say. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is this, being content for your faith doesn't mean being contentious. You can have a really good yes. conversation. And one of the things you could say to people is, look, let me tell you what I have found in my faith which changes my life. Let me tell you why I'm a Christian, because of the difference it makes. Now, Russell's quite right, you know, it's not just a personal benefit, it's is it true, but the personal benefit side of things is really important because it brings home for people we're talking to that Christianity is real, that makes a difference. And very often when your friends are listening, they'll hear you say, I found something that changes my life. I want you to find this as well. So you might think about that. If I were to talk about my faith, what is it that I found that's changed my life and how would I explain that to my friends? That's a a good way of getting a conversation underway. And you say several things to back that up, and if I may just pull them out a little bit of the book, because they impacted me. One, you quote Lewis, who made this brilliant statement that we should remember, that this really is the lens of Scripture. I believe in Christianity, Lewis wrote, as I believe that the sun has risen, not because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And that dovetails into a reference you made to John Dewey, an American philosopher, who said that there really needs to be this integration about our thoughts about the world around us and our values and purpose. No other worldview does that better, it seems to me, than the worldview of Christianity. It is through that that things are taken out of focus and made clear before us, it seems to me. One of the benefits, as you just referred to, of Christianity over atheism, which really leaves you in a world of grays and murky darks. 
I think that's absolutely right. I mean, let, let's take this point further because it's a really good one. I mean, one thing Dewey is saying is, look, we, we focus on how things work, but we don't know what things mean. And that's really mm. important because, you know, we have so many people who say, well, we look at the world and what you see is what you get. There's nothing else to see. But we can say, no, no, no. We can talk to you about how our world works, how we work. But actually, there's this deeper question of meaning and value. And Christianity really engages those. And that quote you gave us from Lewis is a wonderful quote because what Lewis is saying is that Christianity is like an intellectual sun lighting up a landscape. We see things more clearly. Things come into focus. The shadows begin to disappear. And we need to concentrate and explain to people the way in which the Christian faith makes sense of life and makes sense of our world. Mm, Excellent. I hope this conversation is breathing a sense of peace and boldness into your life and to your heart as well. Just think, we perishable vessels have been given this imperishable message. Ah, Boy, I tell you, if I were God, that isn't the way I'd do it. We're flawed, fractured, and broken, and yet we have this privilege of contending. More after this. So just how can you experience joy in the middle of life's challenges? Hi, I'm Steve Douglas for Making Your Life Count, and Don Whitestone says that is possible with Jesus Christ. Emotional trauma is experienced when the level of pain exceeds our capacity for joy. So the more capacity for joy we have, the more we are able to endure difficulty and hardship well, because our level of joy determines our ability to be resilient and handle stress. So if you wanna get better at handling stress, spend more time being joyful and growing that part of your brain. And choosing joy is a game changer when it comes to your outlook on life and on faith. So joy is a relational emotion. To your brain, joy means someone is glad to be with me. So you can practice joy by being with people you you love and enjoy and people whose eyes light up when you walk in the door. You can grow that part of your brain by remembering people who love you, just practicing five minutes of appreciation a day does tremendous things for your brain health. And if you'll practice a full five minutes of appreciation three times a day for a month, you can change your normal mood state from irritability, anxiety, and low mood to a a normal mood state of joy. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 15, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, you can choose hope and joy in Jesus Christ. A consistent feature of church history is Christians caring for Christians. For the Colson Center, I'm John Stone Street with The Point. The book of Acts begins with Peter and the apostles providing basic care for the widows in the Jerusalem church. It ends with Paul returning to Jerusalem, bringing contributions from the newer Gentile churches for what might be called famine relief. 
The church today faces a similar crisis. It's not as much a famine of food as it is a famine of freedom and tolerance. Christians in India, for example, are an oppressed minority. And as the nation reels from a new wave of COVID-19, believers often end up at the back of the line for medical supplies like ventilators. See, the suffering of Christ's church comes in many forms. Certainly, there's the persecution seen in India and around the world. There's also the suffering of a fallen world filled with thorns. We have to pray for our brothers and sisters in need and, like the Christians throughout history, do whatever we can to help whenever we can. For the Colson Center, I'm John Stone Street. Religion is corrosive to science. It teaches people to be satisfied with trivial, supernatural non-explanations and blinds them to the wonderful real explanations that we have within our grasp. It teaches them to accept authority, revelation and faith instead of always insisting on evidence. So the best I can do is to recommend that you read the Dawkins Delusion to understand how easy it is to unpack that declaration by Richard Dawkins himself. That book just happens to have been written by our guest, Dr. Alistair McGrath, who joins us from England. He is professor at Oxford University of Note, Science and Religion at Oxford and director of the Ian Ramsey Center for Science and Religion. His new book is called Mere Discipleship, Growing in Wisdom and Hope, and it's about developing this concept of the discipleship of the mind. Dr. McGrath, if I can, let me just linger here for a moment. If you are a professor of science and religion, it seems to me a self-evident truth that the two are not in conflict. They're the disciplines that you teach about and lecture on on a regular basis. Where did this false idea, in fact, you you time dropped it, which I thought was interesting. You hearken back to this Victorian idea that somehow science and religion were in conflict. In truth, they're very much in harmony. How did this get legs and walk around our culture so rapidly? Well, I think the answer is because some people wanted that to be true. In other words, there are people who, in effect, wanted science to be a weapon against religion. And Richard Dawkins is a really very good example of that. And, of course, you, you can make science and religion fight each other, but actually they're different. I mean, in many ways, what science is doing is helping us to understand how our world works, but it doesn't tell us why we're here. It doesn't tell us how we should live. And the point I very often make, picking up on that image from C.S. Lewis we talked about earlier, is this idea of a big picture. It's very much like saying, well, look, Maybe science fills in part of that big picture, but we need more than that. We need to know what life is all about, what its meaning is, not just how it happens. And if you like, you can bring science and religion together and say they answer different questions. How does the Mm. world work? What does the world mean? We need them both if we're going to live meaningful lives in this world. Yeah, absolutely. You write in the book, to be a Christian is not to passively accept a set of intellectual beliefs, but to take delight in them and explore their implications for the ways in which we think and behave. Brilliant and so true. And yet, Dr. Paul Little wrote a book several years ago called Know What We Believe and Why We Believe It. We may not know necessarily completely what we believe, but the why part becomes even more problematic. To that end, you talk about something known as reflective inhibition. What do you mean by that? Well, effective inhibition is very much this idea that um, 
We need to think more about why we have difficulties with things. We need to help understand why uh, people who disagree with us have those grounds of disagreement, to be able to engage with them and begin to say, you know, I, I can see you have a problem with this. Maybe the reason you have a problem with this is because actually you don't want this to be true. You find Christianity too challenging because if it's right, then it means that a self-seeking life is not a good life for a human beings. So if you like it's all, it's trying to help people understand why they are putting obstacles in the way of faith. And that's very important because for many people, they're holding back from Christianity because there's something in the way. It's like Blaise Pascal, who famously said, mm. you know, the heart has the reasons that the mind doesn't understand. People very often have, have barriers to faith, and the apologists, people like you and me and everyone listening to this program, can kind of figure out what those problems are and maybe do something about that. Mm. You talk about three points about the new atheism that we need to consider. One we've discussed briefly, which is this idea that, as evidenced by the conversation by Bertrand Russell, that somehow Christianity has to be proved, and yet the reversal of that is never asked against the new atheism, prove it yourself. But you also say this. You say that atheism hopelessly oversimplified accounts of religion, and you also say that the new atheism criticizes concept of God that bear little relationship to those associated with Christianity. If you'd be so kind, talk to me a little bit more about both of those because they're key issues. They are key issues. And many Christians read Richard Dawkins and say, look, this is, this is ridiculous. This is, this is outrageous. He, he is depicting Christianity in a way that we just don't recognize. And you know, that's a really important point because Dawkins is, in effect, ridiculing a caricature of Christianity. Why? Because he knows the real thing is it's something he doesn't want people to think about. He wants to present Christianity in a ridiculous way to make people think it's ridiculous. And I think that I've challenged Dawkins on this, and many, many others have. And it's simply to say, look, treat Christianity respectfully. You may not disagree with it, but at least get it right. So one of the things I want to say to your listeners is, look, when people say to you, hey, I can't be a Christian because of this, you say, look, I wonder if you've actually understood what Christianity is. You seem to be getting your idea of Christianity from Richard Dawkins. It's not like that. Let me tell you what it's really all about. That's a really important point to make. And the other point, mm. of course, is, is that in many ways, um, Dawkins is, is, is um, in effect, uh, as we were saying earlier, judging Christianity by criteria he won't apply to his own faith. And he knows perfectly well why that is, because if he does that, then his own faith is shown up to be unprovable, which, of course, is the criticism he makes of Christians as well. Mm, excellent point. The new book is called Mere Discipleship, Growing in Wisdom and Hope. I should point out also that Dr. McGrath wrote a book called Mere Theology, obviously a recognition of the great classic Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. On that note, by the way, one of the things that Dr. McGrath does in this book that is so compelling is he takes a look at four brilliant Christian thinkers and how they can be exemplary in showing and teaching us about the importance of the discipleship of the mind. When we come back, I want to pick up some of that. By the way, as you always hear me say about books that I personally love deeply, is that there will be so much more in the book that even the gift of one hour of our guest time does not allow me to cover. So in my class, again, this would be on the required reading list. You can learn more by going to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. You're going to see a red box with white letters on the front page. It says program details and audio. Click it on. It'll take you over to the information page. There's a picture of Dr. McGrath, a little more of his biography, a link to his website, and a link to his new book, Mere Discipleship. We continue right after this.
With the SRN News Business Brief, I'm John Scott. Stocks ended a wobbly day with mixed results on Wall Street. The S&P 500 index gave up an early gain and ended one-tenth percent lower, giving the benchmark index its second losing week in a row. Losses for a handful of big tech companies, including Apple and Amazon, helped drag the index lower. The Nasdaq gave back five-tenths percent and the Dow rose four-tenths percent. Investors remain focused on the possibility of inflation as the economy revs up after more than a year of shutdowns related to the pandemic. The Dow was ahead 123 points today to finish at 34,207. The Nasdaq lost 64 to 13,470. The S&P 500 dropped three points to 4,155. New York oil rose $1.64, closing at $63.58 a barrel. With business, I'm John Scott. Henry Kissinger, former Secretary of State for two American presidents, as well as a national security advisor, was no stranger to crises. He once jokingly remarked, There can't be a crisis next week. My schedule's already full. It would be nice if we could arrange the crises in our life to come at convenient times. But the opposite seems to be true. They always come when least expected. But did you know that nothing is unexpected for God? What surprises us is no surprise to Him. Our best strategy is not to resist what He allows to come into our life, but to trust His timing. This is David Jeremiah, encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's timing on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today. With SRN News, I'm Keith Peters in Washington. A judge on Friday agreed to unseal absentee ballots to allow for an audit of November election results in Georgia's most populous county. The ruling stems from a lawsuit against Fulton County that alleges evidence of fraudulent ballots and improper counting. The judge said he'll order county officials to scan the more than 145,000 ballots and produce high-resolution images. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported that the plaintiffs plan to use those images to determine whether the ballots were completed by hand or machine to determine their legitimacy. A mixed day on Wall Street as the Dow was up by 123 points to 34,207 the Nasdaq dropping by 64, the S&P 500 lower by 3, oil up a dollar 87 to 6381 a barrel. This is SRN News. Friends, this is Janet Parshall, and I want to take a moment to remind you that today's program is pre-recorded, so our phone lines aren't open, but I sure do appreciate your spending the hour with us. And thanks so much and enjoy the rest of the program. do you tune into In the Market once, twice a week, every day? If this program is valuable to you, why not become a partial partner? Your financial support is invaluable as we apply God's word to current events and modern culture. Knowing we can count on your monthly gift encourages us to deliver relevant and up-to-date content every day. Become a partial partner today by calling 877-JANET-58 or go online to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. We Christians don't call it evolution because we believe it isn't something 
coming up out of blind nature, but something coming down from the world of light and power and knowledge beyond all nature. But if you like to call it evolution, do. The next step is here. You can become one of the new men in Christ if you like. Or, if you prefer, you can refuse the step and sink back. Now, if we take the step, it involves losing what we now call ourselves. That doesn't mean that all the people who accept Christ are going to be exactly like one another. I know it sounds as if it did. If there's one Christ, and he's to be in us all, actually replacing our personalities with his own, what difference will there be between us? Now, here I've got a rather difficult thing to say. On the one hand, it isn't true that we shall lose our personal differences by letting Christ take us over. On the other hand, I don't think Christ can take us over as long as we're bothering about what will happen to our personality. <laughs> Such a brilliant point. And when you think about it, one wonders if that isn't perhaps one of the reasons why some atheists, and I say this with compassion, reject the concept of Christianity, because in the final analysis, there is a denying of self. And as Lewis just pointed out, that doesn't mean you lose a sense of who you are. In fact, it's the antithesis. Acts 17 says so clearly in him we live and move and have our being. Our very definition is in Christ. But there is this belief that he is first. We deny ourselves. We take up our cross. We follow him. Something to think about. But all of this is exemplary of what it means to have the discipleship of the mind. Dr. Alistair McGrath is with us. He is one of my personal heroes. Let me be transparent about that. He's an internationally renowned apologist, professor at Oxford University. He teaches science and religion there. He's the director of the Ian Ramsey Center for Science and Religion. He has doctorates in the natural sciences, intellectual history, Christian theology. He is an international bestseller, having written written The Dawkins Delusion, which ends in a question mark, Atheist Fundamentalism and the Denial of the Divine, and also the book Christian Theology, An Introduction. He's also written a book called Mere Theology, and now he's followed up on that with Mere Discipleship, obviously echoes back to C.S. Lewis's classic Mere Christianity. But in this book, Dr. McGrath challenges us to do what Scripture tells us, that our mind has been renewed, not just our heart transformed, but our mind renewed as well. In fact, two statements before I take a look at some of these four wonderful thinkers that you challenge us to review in your book. You make this statement, a recovery of the life of the mind is essential for the survival and well-being of the church. Living as we do in postmodern 21st century worlds right now, that would seem to be, for some people, a self-evident truth. For others, it raises a question mark. Explain why you think this is so crucial. I think we need to be confident enough to engage the world and be able to say to the world, look, there's something that Christianity is saying that you really need to hear, and I'm going to use your language to help you understand what this is all about. And in many ways, that's one of the things that C.S. Lewis is so good at. He, he finds ways of connecting up the Christian faith to the language of the world, the right words to use, the way of getting across to the world what is so important about Christianity. And Lewis is challenging us, I think, to find ways of explaining Christianity that connect up with people beyond the Christian 
living faith. So if you like, there's a discipleship with a mind here because it challenges us to find good analogies for our faith, good stories, ways of actually communicating the faith to those who are outside the Christian church. And I can assure you this can be done. But really, this book is saying it needs to be done. And mm-hmm. actually, the kind mm-hmm. of people who need to do this are, are, are you and I and everyone else listening. Something else you said that is extremely important, and this is more of a pragmatic question, but I think it's one where a lot of people listening live, if I can put it that way. You've said, I have set out a vision of the mind of Christ as an acquired habit of mind. Now, this is important, an acquired habit of mind, a mental discipline that transforms the way in which we see the world and ourselves and thus requires us to reflective and informed action. So if I can borrow from the great bard for a moment, Professor, therein lies the rub. We live in a world where we look at a website for 15 seconds. We have our remote control. We linger for 30 seconds. We have our iPhones. We slip the pages back and forth. If this is going to be require, if this requires of us mental discipline, we don't live in an age and an era now. We're turning everything off, clearing the clutter away, and practicing that kind of discipline is one of the disciplines that we modern believers are practicing. So the case has to be made forthrightly that this discipleship of the mind is not an opt-in, opt-out clause, but it is a mandate for Christian maturity and for carrying the gospel forward in a postmodern world. Am I right or wrong? Oh, you're right. And it's a great point to make. And what we need to do, I think, is say, right, look, if we want to talk about why Christianity is so wonderful, it would take us six hours, but we've got a minute. And the, what we've got to yes. try and do is say, right, we've got a minute. What are we going to say in that minute? So think about this. If you had only 60 seconds, what would you say about the gospel that would connect up with somebody's life, that could change their life? And that's really important. It's all about saying, I'm going to try and think through how to be able to communicate at a very, very truncated way, in other words, very briefly, why Christianity is so wonderful. And if it's good, if they listen to me, I get two minutes next time, and then maybe four minutes time after that. It's really about generating an audience for the gospel and being able to help them to catch a vision of why it's so wonderful. And if they're not used to long answers, you give them a short answer, and like uh, in Paul's sermon in Athens, they may say, we'd like to hear more about this, yes. and you can tell them more. Yes. Oh, what a great point. Let me move to the center part of the book, which I thought was brilliant. You take a look at four what you call practitioners of the discipleship of the mind. Some may be more familiar to our listeners than other. One that I think is not readily recognizable here in the United States, perhaps as she is in Great Britain, is Dorothy Sayers. First, if you wouldn't mind, a little quick tutorial on who she is and the kind of writing she did in England. Well, Dorothy Sayers um, really came to fame in the 1930s. She wrote detective novels, and they were they were really exciting. They had real intellectual content. And like Agatha Christie and others, she in effect became a household name. And then she discovered Christianity. And actually, Dorothy L. Sayers said, hey, my, my detective novels are all about making sense of what happened in a criminal case. Christianity is all about making sense of our world. So in many ways, Dorothy L. Sayers is a very good person to read in terms of Christianity as making sense of life, making sense of experience. So she's not as well known in the States as she might be, but we love her back here in England because, well, she's (laughs) British and and we like that sort of thing. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, let me introduce our friends to one of her key writings, which was a book called Mind of the Maker. Talk to us about that, because in your book, you say this is really her idea of looking at the image of God in humanity as a kind of imaginative template, which predisposes human beings to think and imagine in certain ways. Talk to me about that. Well, it's one of Dorothy L. Sayers' best books. In, in this book, she says, look, I'm a novelist, and when I write a book, I, I have a sense that there's something guiding me, that there's some kind of template in my mind which is connecting my story up with something bigger. And we find the same thing in J.R.R. Tolkien, interestingly. But mm. if Dorothy L. Sayers is right... We can use stories to help people think about faith. We can tell the story of our lives. We can use biblical stories like the parables and expect to connect up with people. And for me, that's really important. Dorothy L. Sayers is saying, look, connect with people's imaginations. Make those connections with, um, you know, the, the story of our faith, what the gospel's all about, how it affects us. And that will connect up with people. So I think there's a great point being made there. Exactly. And we really have Jesus as an example to the power of the story. You said something that triggered my thinking, and that is, of course, you wouldn't write a book called Mere Discipleship without referencing C.S. Lewis again as one of the practitioners. He was quintessentially exemplary in this area. And I want to talk particularly about how you refer to the voyage of the Dawn Treader. But I also want to talk about a phrase he used that I, I have been with Christian friends whose backs have gone up a bit when I make the reference that Lewis would talk about Christian mythology, some misunderstanding understand that as being, he's saying that it's not true, a.k.a. the Greek gods or the Norse gods, that this is just another set of fairy tales. But that's not what he meant at all. Please explain. Well, Lewis uses the word myth in a technical sense. So you're right. We've got to explain what this means. What Lewis means by a myth is a a big story which captures your imagination and conveys intellectual content. So he's saying myth is a, a special kind of story. Then he says now Christianity is a true myth. In other words, it captures your imagination, it conveys intellectual content, and it is true. And the point that Lewis is making is, if that's right, we can tell stories that will capture people's imaginations and allow them to grasp the intellectual content of the Christian faith. That's why he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. It's about telling a story that makes people receptive to some of the main Christian themes. And that's why I think Lewis is such an important voice for our time, because we are a storytelling culture, and Lewis encourages us to tell biblical stories, tell our own stories, or to do things like tell the stories of Narnia, connecting up, conveying truth. Absolutely. In fact, to that end, and I got a lump in my throat when I read it again in your beautiful summation, you make a reference in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And again, probably the most fascinating line of any novel to begin with Eustace Scrub, uh, this picture of unsympathetic selfishness. And the opening line was, there was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub. And he almost deserved it. But you say, here he is, turned into a dragon, and eventually it's Aslan, this type for Christ, who tears away the scales and set the boy free of his self-centeredness. What a picture of what Christ does for us. The power of a story. The discipleship of the mind. That's what this book is about, Mere Discipleship. Much more with Dr. Alistair McGrath after this. This is Paul Cannings. It doesn't matter what you face today. It matters most who you face it with. Stay tuned and allow God to influence your life through His Word. Is prayer important or is it absolutely necessary? 
Prayer is absolutely necessary. That's why Paul would tell us to pray without ceasing. It is absolutely necessary. Breathing is absolutely necessary. Oh, folks, eating at some point in time is necessary. Drinking water is absolutely necessary. Folks, prayer is not just important. It's not just something we do because it's prayer time at church. It's not just something we do because it's a part of our devotions. It's not just something we do because there's difficulties in our lives. Prayer is like breathing. It is absolutely necessary. Jesus Christ is teaching us that many times you see him go away and pray. He is on the same level as God in his very nature. He is the very being, totally holy, totally righteous, everywhere, all at the same time. This Jesus had patterns in his life that demonstrates prayer. Because God is loving, because God is a caring, kind God, because God's grace is sufficient for everything, there's nothing impossible with God. And for that reason, because it is possible, we just keep going to God. Sometimes people need to take a retreat to pray. I learned from my brother who was in the military for many years that retreating is not always meaning the battle is over. It just means you're reorganizing yourself to come back. Sometimes it's good to retreat. You can get tuned into God better. You get our focus refreshed. We can get some rest. So that when we come back into focus, we can stand stronger than before. For more on this and other helpful resources, log on to PowerWalkMinistries.org. Maybe you've done it. I know I have, but I can't really explain it. Why do we feel the need to wave goodbye? Social media is full of chatter from people who just can't explain it. The Zoom meeting is over. You find yourself waving at the camera as you say goodbye. Others report talking loudly, leaning in close. It's awkward, maybe a bit embarrassing, but psychologists say it's a positive. It means we are creating community, valuing others' time even replacing nonverbal cues that usually happen in person. Humans are social creatures. We make community wherever we are, even in cyberspace. It reminds me of Jeremiah speaking to Israel heading into exile. Make a life there, he said, because the Lord promises to bring you back. Jesus' promise frees us up to make a life and to love our neighbors. I'm Charles Morris at haventoday.org. The most important philosophy, I think, is that even if it isn't true, you must absolutely assume there is no afterlife. You cannot, for one second, I think, abrogate the responsibility of, of, of believing that this is it. Because if you think you're going to have an eternity in which you can talk to Mozart and, and, and Schopenhauer in, in, on a cloud and learn stuff and, you know, really get to grips with knowledge and understanding, and so you won't bother now, I think you're, it's a terrible, a terrible mistake. It may be that there is an afterlife, and I'll look incredibly stupid, but at least I would have had a crammed pre-afterlife, a crammed life. So to me, the most important thing is... Um, you know, uh, as Kipling put it, you know, to fill every 60 seconds uh, with, you know, what is it? To fill every unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, you know, absolutely. Uh, so that's all I'm saying, I suppose, is that, um, is that it, there's no point wasting time um, being lazy. Really and truly, 
That Should Break Your Heart. That's the actor Stephen Fry, who's very open about both his sexuality and his atheism. And by the way, I don't know about you, but when you think about heaven, does Mozart come to mind? That That's not one of my first conceptions. But what's interesting is this idea of whether or not the scriptures are true when it says that God has placed eternity in our heart. Lewis writes about this so powerfully, this, this sense of longing that we were made for someplace else, that homesickness that we feel, that this is so temporal, thank you, Lord, that we are passing through. This is not our real home. In your book, Dr. McGrath, you write about Bertrand Russell's daughter saying that somewhere at the back of my father's mind, referring to her father, Bertrand Russell, at the bottom of his heart, in the depths of his soul, there was an empty space that had once been filled by God, and was, and he never found anything else to put in there. Russell was now haunted by a ghost-like feeling of not belonging in this world. It seems to me that his longing reflects the profundity of reality that God has indeed created someplace else for us, and we're not there yet. Talk to me about that, please. Well, Russell's really interesting because, you know, as you were saying, he, you know, he did not accept Christianity, but he had this sense that whatever there was that was meaningful life, he hadn't found it, that atheism didn't give him intellectual satisfaction. He was longing for something that really made a difference to his life. And actually, even in modern American culture, you will find many atheists who, if you take them to one side and have a one-to-one conversation, will say, look, we're searching, we haven't found it, there's maybe something there, we don't know, but we're looking. And I think that's very important because this whole Christian idea of bearing God's image is about this realization we're made for something better. There's a bigger, better place we're meant to be. And this life is, if you like, simply a preparation for it, but it's not where we really belong. So a wonderful quote from G.K. Chesterton, where, where in one of his books says, we've come to the wrong star. We don't really belong here. And that, that's it. That's what it's all about, realizing that we are here, but there's something even better that stored up for us, and we can live this life in that hope. So well said. Let me point out to our friends that you also take a look at John Stott and J.I. Packer. Again, brilliant examples of practitioners of what you're advocating, which is the discipleship of the mind. If I may, let me come down to terra firma for a moment, because I would venture to say, as we are talking now to people from Guam to the Cayman Islands, that some would say, yes, 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 I, I accept intellectually this idea that I need to practice the mental discipline of grooming a discipleship of the mind. But I don't know where to start. I'm rather overwhelmed. I'm trying to just, if I can borrow from Scripture, look well to the ways of my household. So you, Dr. McGrath, have multiple initials after your name. I just want to talk to my neighbor over the back fence, and I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to answer the questions that he or she poses. A word of encouragement. Now, be a, if I can put it this way, be a kind of life coach, theologically, if you will, for a moment. Where does one begin if this discipline of discipleship has not been a part of your growing in Christ. Well, you begin right where you are. And you say, look, I don't need to be good with words. I don't need to be able to master arguments. What I need to do is be able to explain the difference that my faith makes to my life and then be able to explain that to the guys over the fence or the people I meet in the shopping mall. And in effect, Mm -hmm. begin to build up having those conversations. And you may find they ask questions like, well, you know, um, what about Jesus being both God and man? That's hard. You say, yes, it is. We'll come back to that. We'll we'll meet again for coffee and you go home and you read a book and you say, right, let me get the sorted out so I know what I'm going to say when I meet them next. In other words, you don't see questions as something to be frightened about. They are opportunities to think through for yourself what these are all about, and then you go back 
with the answers that you find satisfactory, and you can then share them with your friends. You just take this at your own pace. You feel comfortable, but you need to be encouraged, you need to be reassured. You can do this, and it will open doorways to the Christian faith for the people you're talking to. So don't feel overwhelmed. There's a lot you can do, and if you say, hey, I'm no good at doing anything, you're wrong. God is able to take you and you, you trust him, and think, what could I say that might actually be a doorway for somebody to find the Christian gospel? Amen. And not only that, but it seems, Dr. McGrath, the recognition that ours is a relationship, not a religion. If Jeremiah himself, that that teenage prophet who had to deliver a very difficult message, could utter the words, your words in my mouth, O God, the same God who put his words in the mouth of his prophet could do the same thing for us as well. So we needn't be timid and to pull back. You end the books, and I want to thank you for doing this, particularly and personally, with some sermons that you've preached, and you end with one about the hope of heaven. Herein lies, I think, the utter distinction between Christianity and all other worldviews. We are not people without hope. I've got about a minute left. Talk to us as we conclude this hour together about the concept of hope and why for the believer this should be the compelling factor to discipline our mind to contend for the faith. Christianity is saying we are on a journey, but we're not going nowhere. We are going to a better place. We journey in hope, knowing that God is with us as our shepherd. He's going to bring us home. We can enjoy life while we're here, but there's something even better that's yet to come. And one day, we'll be with that God and see him face to face. Wow. Oh, Dr. McGrath, what a note to end on. So there you are, stuck in rush hour traffic. It's been a rough day. Oh, you're not feeling particularly good. Did you just get re-energized and understanding that Christ is our end-all and be-all? And then again, we have the privilege of being able to share his good news with others. Do you wake up fervently and say, Lord, today, give me yet again another opportunity to share your good news? Are you practicing the discipleship of the mind? I hope you are. I hope this book has been a catalyst for a fresh start in your life. I can't thank you enough, Dr. McGrath, for such insight and for such splendid conversation. Thank you so much. The book, again, Mere Discipleship, Growing in Wisdom and Hope. You can learn more by going to my website, inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. You know how this works. There's the box. It's red, white letters, program details and audio. Click it on. Takes you to the information page. You'll see the book. You can click through to learn more and start that journey of discipleship of your mind. Thank you, friends. We'll see you next time on In the Market with Janet Hartnell. Is there a place for you in heaven? Find out when you read Heaven and the Afterlife, a one-volume set of Erwin Lutzer's hallmark works on eternity. Heaven and the Afterlife lifts the veil on eternity and reminds us that this world isn't all there is. This book will challenge you to seek what cannot be lost before it's too late. Heaven and the Afterlife, available online or at your favorite Christian retailer. For more, visit moodypublishers.com. It's been a hectic day, and your head finally rests on the pillow, but your brain won't quit racing as you think of the future. Or maybe your mind is consumed with anxiously thinking of the past. In his new book, Practicing the Present, Dr. John Kessler helps readers focus on the here and now. You'll learn how to be present. Understand how to simply trust God as he meets you right where you are. Practicing the Present at MoodyPublishers.com. 
With SRN News, I'm Keith Peters in Washington. President Joe Biden on Friday said he and South Korean President Moon Jae-in remain deeply concerned about the situation with North Korea and announced that he will deploy a new special envoy to the region to help refocus efforts on pressing Pyongyang to abandon its nuclear program. But President Biden says he wants to go further. Our goal is and remains complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. We want to make practical progress and increase uh, security in the United States for the United States and our allies. Mr. Biden said he was dispatching career diplomat Sung Kim, who previously served as ambassador to South Korea, to serve as the special envoy to the region. Moon came to Washington seeking renewed diplomatic urgency by the U.S. on curbing North Korea's nuclear program, even as the White House signaled that it's taking a longer view on the issue. New York State Attorney General Letitia James announced that her investigation into activities by New York Governor Andrew Cuomo will continue until it's concluded. Cuomo faces accusations of sexual harassment by several women, as well as profiting from a book on the COVID-19 crisis. James said she will not be deterred by accusations that the investigation into sexual harassment allegations against Cuomo are politically motivated. We ignore all of those comments. We are doing our work pursuant to an executive order that was issued by the governor of the state of New York. They are also investigating whether Cuomo undercounted COVID-19 nursing home death numbers by several thousand. Prospects for an ambitious infrastructure deal were thrown into serious doubt late Friday after the White House reduced President Joe Biden's sweeping proposal to $1.7 trillion, but Republican senators rejected the compromise as disappointing, saying vast differences remain. This is SRN News. A new ranking of members of Congress. The organization 21 Wilberforce is focused on international religious freedom and has released a rundown of how much individual lawmakers are doing to address the problem. Amongst the members of the 116th Congress, Republican Marco Rubio and Democrat Brad Sherman rank the highest. Rubio says, quote, I am proud to continue to advance policies that ensure protections for freedom of religion and impose consequences on governments who abuse religious freedom. Michael Harrington, SRN News. The student wing of India's ruling BJP parties being blamed for vandalizing a church in the northern part of the country. International Christian Concern says local believers report the incident to police but did little to investigate. Violent persecution of Christians in India has been on the rise in recent years and most blame it on the BJP party, which is an Hindu nationalist organization. Critics say Prime Minister Narendra Modi's administration turns a blind eye to the persecution. This is SRN News. American pharmaceutical company Pfizer and German company BioNTech have pledged to deliver 2 billion doses of their vaccine to middle- and low-income countries over the next 18 months. Correspondent Charles de Ledesma reports. The companies, which together developed the first vaccine to be authorized for use in the U.S. and Europe, have made the announcement at a global health summit in Rome, co-hosted by the EU's executive arm and Italy. Pfizer says it expects to provide a billion of the donated doses this year and another billion in 2022, as vaccination campaigns continue to progress in the Western world. Poorer countries are struggling to acquire supplies. Earlier this week, the UN Security Council expressed concern about the small number of doses that have reached Africa. I'm Charles de Ledesma. More details at srnnews.com. I'm Keith Peters in Washington. 
Here's our host, Rob West, with a Money Wise Minute. If there's one thing we buy and then never want to think about again, it's life insurance. But most of us need it, so we get it, and then forget it. But you shouldn't. Your needs change, and every few years you need to do a life insurance checkup. Families grow, and the death benefit needs to be increased. Stay-at-home spouses also need life insurance when kids are young to cover the cost of child care should something happen. In later years, your children will be on their own so you can move to less expensive coverage. You also need to make sure your primary and contingent beneficiary designations are up to date and reflect your wishes. A quick life insurance checkup now may someday spare your family a world of trouble. Your money. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.